Good morning. It's a little chilly outside. Last uh, Wednesday during staff meeting, I shared um, with folks that I was really excited because we have my niece and a friend of uh, hers and, and Zachary and Ella that's coming up next weekend, a weekend from, uh, from this weekend, and um, he had never seen snow before. And I was reading, and it was like two inches here, three inches here, three, you know. And by the end of the week, it was looking like we could have a foot of snow. Now we're getting zilch, and a little disappointed about that. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm still hopeful. God's in control of the weather, but it sure would be nice to have a little bit of white stuff on the ground, you know. So I know some of you are thinking I'm, that guy's crazy, but um, I love the snow. I, if it's going to be cold, I want it to snow. So. In any event, well, we're so glad that you're here in this nice, warm uh, building. Uh, last week, we began our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, we laid out kind of an introduction, kind of talked about uh, what the book was about, uh, who wrote it, when was it written, where was it written, uh, answered all of those kinds of questions. And uh, we went, made it through the first seven verses, kind of as an introduction, and we reflected upon God's promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would make them into a great nation, which in turn, because they are a great nation, God had a purpose for them, and that was to be a blessing to all other nations. And we learned that God's plan required that his people suffer in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. And we concluded that God's ways are not our ways, and that if we are to endure, we must remember and cling to the promises of God and trust in him. This morning, we're going to be picking up in verse 8, which introduces a very dark picture of life in Egypt. But as we do that, we also begin to see, at least in part, uh, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. We begin to see that God will always fulfill his promises, accomplish his purposes, and bring about the salvation of his people. So let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that uh, we have your word by which we can know you, that we can uh, learn what you require of us and Lord, as we look at uh, the book of Exodus and the story of redemption, uh, Lord, there's so much for us to learn. So we pray that you would just open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might receive all that you have for us. Uh, encourage us, even as we look at this dark picture in the life of your people in the Old Testament. In Christ's name I pray, amen. If... Uh, you've been reading it all in, in Exodus, you realize that uh, large swaths of time kind of occur and you don't really get a, a sense of that. It's just kind of one flowing um, uh, uh, narrative that we have. But there's a lot of time that has gone by, especially since Joseph died and now we come to chapter eight. And in his sermon, uh, Hurry Up and Wait, Steve Cole said this, and I, I think this will help us kind of um, uh, get our minds ready to hear what God wants to say to us this morning. He says, if you have ever been a Christian for any length of time, 
You know what it means to wait on God. God's ways are not our ways, and his timing is often not our timing. But what if you waited on God your entire life without hearing from him? And what if your kids and their kids and their kids kept waiting, but still no word from God? Centuries have gone by and things are getting worse, not better. You and your people are enslaved by a cruel dictator who is making life miserable. Then, to make matters worse, he orders that all of your male babies be slaughtered. That's the situation when the book of Exodus opens. It's hard for us. I mean, we know the story, and it goes by in a blur. We can tell it in a few sentences, so to speak, but we need to remember that time slowed down for the people of God. And it was a very, very dark time. And we pick up here in verse 8 in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And we're going to see, first, and first of all, that there was a new king. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see, everything changed after Joseph died. A new king comes to power who did not know Joseph or have any regard for his past service or his people. By this time, Joseph's family had grown to large numbers. Thus, the reason why it, it, it said that they're too strong, they're too mighty, they, they're, they're too big. They might fight against us, they might join our enemies, they might leave the land. Now, it says that he didn't know Joseph. Well, that would make sense if Joseph had died many, many years before. Um, but it doesn't really mean, I, at least I don't think it means that, that he didn't know about Joseph. Um, I don't think it meant that, that, that he didn't know about him or the special arrangement that he had with his people. I think more likely the phrase did not know Joseph meant that he felt no special obligation to honor any agreements that Joseph had made with his people. And verse 9 seems to support this because the king clearly knows about Jacob when he refers to the people of Israel, which was Jacob's name, Israel. And by the way, this is the first time in Scripture that Abraham's descendants are referred to as a people. Very interesting. They are now a people. And the king believes that these people pose a threat to his rule and to his reign. They are too many and too mighty for us. So the question we ask is, who was this king? Well, the answer is we don't know. The most powerful man in Egypt is never named in this book. Uh, neither, for that matter, is any other Egyptian king in the book of Exodus. They're unnamed. Interesting. 
Now, some think that this king was a Semitic ruler, perhaps from Assyria, um, who had conquered Egypt and ruled there for a time. Others think, uh, think he might have been uh, Camos, who restored Egyptian rule, or perhaps his brother Amos, who ruled after him. But as powerful as this king was, no matter who he was, he was a king that lived in fear, which is kind of ironic. The most powerful man in Egypt living in fear. He lived in fear of being defeated in battle and losing the throne. He, he lived in fear of losing his position, his power, and his prestige and status in the world. He was also fearful that the people uh, of Israel would escape from Egypt. I mean, think about it. If, 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 if they, even if they didn't fight with another country, they, they merely left Egypt, what kind of an impact do you think that would have had on that country, upon him, its leader? It, it, it would have tremendously weakened the workforce. It would have decimated the economy because they were so dependent upon them. So fear, fear's not a good, good motivator in many cases. Fear can make you panic. Fear can make you make bad decisions. It can lead you to do stupid things. And here, his fear drove him to come up with a new strategy, a new strategy to ensure the status quo, that the people would stay in the land, they would not be a threat to him, they wouldn't fight against him, and all would be well. And what was that new strategy? Well, it was the oppression of God's people. And it may have begun slowly, but before long, the people found themselves under the harsh rule of Pharaoh. And he sought to control the people and, and limit their growth first through slavery. Let's look at verse 11. It says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See, the Israelites were given the difficult task of making bricks um, for the building of their great store cities and also working in the fields. The king basically was using the people of God as free slave labor to do all of this. And he wanted them to know, the reason why he did it, he wanted, to know, he wanted them to know who was in charge. He wanted them to know who was boss and who had the power. And one of the things that, that you see in the book of Exodus is that there's this contrast between God and the pharaohs. See, Pharaoh sets himself up as God. And then God comes along and says, no, I'm Yahweh. There is no one like me. And so here he's, he's exercising, in a sense, a divine prerogative of controlling the people. He's in charge. He has the power. He's going to find out otherwise. 
in the not too distant future. So, but the scripture here tells us that the more that they were oppressed, the more that they grew and spread throughout the land. Now you would think that you know, the population might decrease or at least level off uh, due to uh, the harsh work conditions. You know, you would have some attrition, people dropping dead because they're overworked, you know, or they're starving or they're, they're not getting water to drink and they're out there in the hot sun. You would have thought that might be the case, but that's not what happened. Instead, just the opposite happened. They multiplied. They got bigger. They had more babies. Their growth was in spite of their harsh treatment. And what does that tell you? It tells you that something supernatural is going on here. God is involved in this. God is intervening, and he's mitigating the things that Pharaoh is doing to his people, and they are growing and spreading out. You know, you've heard that definition of insanity, you know, something to the kid and of, you know, trying the same thing but expecting different results. Well, um, that's kind of what you see going on here. I mean, clearly the strategy is not working, right? In enslaving them, doing other, you know, nope, they continue to grow. So what, what does the king do? Well, verse 13 tells us he doubles down. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They were making them work as slaves before. That was bad enough. Now they're ruthlessly doing it. And it's clear that the harsh treatment as slaves is not having the desired effect on limiting their growth as a people. So the king intensifies his oppression and he orders the Hebrew midwives to commit infanticide. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, that when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now infanticide is the killing of infants. And it's been a widespread practice throughout history as a means of disposing unwanted children. And as soon as you hear that, you can't help but think of the modern practice of abortion. Disposable children, unwanted children, inconvenient children. You know, in thousands of years, the heart of man has not changed that much. Now, this story should remind you of another story, a story in the New Testament, the story of Herod the Great, the king of Judea, who was fearful, fearful that he might lose his throne. So he ordered the execution of every male child two years and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem where Jesus, the ultimate savior, was born. And in both stories, each king is just a pawn in the cosmic battle 
between good and evil, between God and Satan. Satan is behind the curtain, pulling the strings, trying to keep God's Savior from arriving on stage. And both of them failed. Now, Shipra and Pua, who, again, <laughs> so interesting that the that the most powerful men in Egypt aren't named in the book of Exodus, but here you have two Hebrew midwives that are mentioned by name. Interesting. They're just two of many midwives, but they're mentioned here. They may have very well have been the chief administrators or supervisors over uh, many other midwives as there were thousands of Hebrew women in Egypt. So two women could not have, have handled that entire population. And the term Hebrew midwives uh, is a little bit uncertain. It can actually mean Hebrew midwives, meaning that they were Hebrew and their job was to be a midwife. Um, but it could also mean that they were midwives to Hebrews. So they, they may have been Egyptian women who just helped the Hebrew women develop, uh, deliver their babies. Um, verse 17, which we'll get to here in just a minute, seems to suggest that, that they were Hebrews, um, but they may have been uh, non-Hebrew God-fearers, just like in the New Testament when you had Greek God-fearers. Uh, they, they weren't Jewish, they weren't Christian, they were God-fearers. Now, what is clear is the command. If a Hebrew woman gives birth to a son, kill it. Kill it. The birth stool were two stones that women would sometimes squat between, kneel upon, or sit upon when giving birth. Now, I want you to try to imagine what these midwives must have been thinking and feeling upon hearing the king's command. Now, these were women who dedicated their lives to bringing life into the world. And now, all of a sudden, they're being commanded to take it, to kill it. And and, in what, and not in an attached way either. This is hands-on work. They're, they're, they're commanded to take the lives of baby boys that were coming into the world. Can you just imagine? Why, why in the world would you ask us to do such a thing? And then, of course, they had a decision to make, didn't they? Do they obey the king? Or do they disobey and face the consequences. Now today, most people would agree that no doctor should be forced to provide an abortion um, against, against his wishes, his will, his convictions, his conscience. But this view is changing. I spent a little bit of time just doing some research online and um, it's scary. There's a great deal of pressure on medical professionals today to follow governmental and institutional directives. And if they don't, there are consequences to the institution as well as to the physicians. Conscience 
clauses have been added to try to shield doctors and nurses from having to perform abortions, but the pressure is still felt. And in fact, in some states and in some cases, um, it doesn't matter if you have a, 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 a conscience clause, you still have to perform the abortion. And we have people today in the medical profession who are saying, you know, I'm going to do like what these midwives did. I'm going to face the consequences. I'm going to disobey. And that's what the midwives did. Look at verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That's an interesting text. I mean, we obviously commend the midwives for disobeying the king's directive, but a question arises, doesn't it? Did they lie to the king in verse 19? And if so, does that mean sometimes it's okay to lie? It's the same question that arises when we look at the story of Rahab and the spies in, in Jericho. Now, we need to be careful that we don't lose sight of the forest through the trees here because the point of the passage is that these women did what was right. But let me, let me add this, that it's not necessary for us to think that they lied to the king. I know on, on first glance, you think, well, it, that's what it looks like, but it may not have been. It may have been that the Hebrew women, having been informed of the king's plan, gave birth without the aid of the midwives. They didn't call upon them. Word didn't get out in time. So their response may not have been void of truth, though it may not have been the whole truth. The midwives may also may have delayed in going to the home and in so doing provide enough time for the Hebrew women to give birth and to hide their sons. But in any case, the midwives were not obligated to tell Pharaoh the whole truth. And so they gave him part of it. Now, Philip Riken and Kent Hughes in their commentary on Exodus suggest another possibility. Um, I'd, I'd have to look at the original Hebrew a little bit more closely, but he says, speaking tongue-in-cheek, the midwives were making sport of Pharaoh by suggesting that the Hebrews were hardier than the Egyptians. What they said was more of a joke than a lie. Thus, Pharaoh was mocked as well as deceived. So I'm, I'm just throwing that out there, that it's, it's not clear, but I, I would tend to think that if the king had issued a decree such as that, the minute the first child, the first baby boy that was killed by a midwife, which 
based on, on, on this, I mean, these two disobeyed, but it's possible that maybe one of the underlings might have done that, or it's possible that they would have spread the word saying, hey, be aware, the king has just decreed this. Whatever, whatever the reason, the king did not feel like it was necessary to punish the midwives because he didn't. He didn't punish them. If, 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 if they were doing something and the king sensed that, that he was being lied to, that he was being deceived, that they were in fact complicit in all of this, certainly the king would have come down on them, but he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't d- discipline them for failing to carry out his command as evidenced by the fact that God blessed them and gave them families. So they were still around to be blessed by God. The New International Version, uh, 1984, says he gave them families of their own. That's an interesting, interesting reading. Uh, the, NI, uh, the NAS 95 says he established households for them. This was a reward for their faith. See, God always fulfills his promises, accomplishes his purposes, and brings about the salvation of his people. And here you begin to see God's hand at work, protecting these male infants, paving the way for the birth of the Savior who would deliver them from bondage in Egypt. All right, so plan B, clearly not working. Plan A isn't working. Plan B is not working. So the king broadens his murderous command. And rather than just relying upon the midwives to do his dirty work, now he commands and authorizes all of his people to commit genocide. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Joseph is dead. The people have been enslaved and treated harshly, and now they are being systematically exterminated. You go, well, they're only killing the boys. Well, the last time I checked, it takes a boy and a girl to keep a race going. He was attacking God by attacking God's people. Genocide is the deliberate killing of a large number of people with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a nation, uh, an ethnic group, a racial group, or a religious group. And that's what's happening here. Infant sons are being taken from their homes. They're being ripped from their parents' arms. No doubt as they're screaming and begging and pleading for the life of their son. And then they're being thrown into the river where they would most likely be eaten by crocodiles or drowned. I'm sure that there were more than just a few of God's people wondering if they had gotten God's promises wrong or if they had taken a wrong turn somewhere along the way. Why, why is this happening? God, have we sinned? Are you, are you punishing us? 
Have you ever wondered that? I have. Largely because sometimes um, I, I, I know I deserve it. When you, when you disobey, when you do things that you, you shouldn't do, and, and there are consequences. And it's true, we, we do. We live in a fallen world. And a lot of suffering is a result of our own sinful choices. But that's not always the case. It's not always because of our sin that we suffer. Sometimes it might be because of the sin of others. But sometimes it's just the fact that we live in a fallen world. And as I mentioned last week, all of this is a part of God's plan. This was a part of God's plan. He led them to Egypt, and in fact, he was with them in Egypt. Back in Genesis chapter 46, verses 2 through 4, it says, And God spoke to Israel, that is Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. You see, as strange as it may seem to us, the people of Israel couldn't make a beeline for the promised land. That's what we would have liked. I mean, if God had given us that promise, we'd say, yeah, promised land, all for it, great nation, all for it, take me there now. I want to get there now. But they couldn't. They had to go to Egypt. And we go, why? Why did they have to go to Egypt? Well, uh, once again, we have, we have the, the, the privilege of hindsight. And we can think about it and talk about it and reason and, and devise uh, reasons, come up with reasons, very good reasons for why God may have done this. But in the moment, they had no clue. I'm sure God had many reasons for the detour. I came up with a few. Let me share a few with you. During Jacob's life and afterwards, the area that we now know is Palestine was a war zone. Invaders from the north, uh, the Hittites, the Hurrians, they invaded from the north while Egyptian armies invaded from the south and from the west. It was a battleground. And it would have been very unlikely that a band of 70 people would have grown into a great nation and become strong in the middle of all of that. But in Egypt, and with Joseph paving the way for them, they flourished and they grew in safety. And by the time they left Egypt, their numbers swelled upwards to two million. And at the same time, the northern powers and the southern powers had weakened, leaving a power vacuum in the land by which Israel as a nation could actually um, exist and grow. That's the first reason. Another reason, second reason. 
the geography of Palestine is not unlike that of Greece. A lot of hills, a lot of divides. Um, it, it's, you, you got you know, hills and rivers and, and things like that. And if you know anything about ancient Greece, they, were, they, they, they had a common heritage, but they developed what was known as city-states. They were separate from one another. Even though they had that common heritage, they were separate. That would not do for the people of God. God said they would become a great nation. He designed them to be a unique people in all the earth, distinct from all the other nations of the earth. And so I think it would... It makes sense to think that it was in Egypt that they developed their identity. They grew close to one another. They depended upon one another. And of course, with the deliverance that God provided for them and the laws that God gave them at Mount Sinai, all of this came together to help shape them and form them into a people so that once they entered into the land, they wouldn't divide into city-states but they would be one people in one nation. Another possible reason was God's long suffering. In Genesis 15, after uh, disclosing to Abraham that his descendants would be strangers in the land that is not theirs and that they would be uh, enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, he adds in verse 16, then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the, now this is the phrase for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You know what in the world does that have to do with anything? The 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 iniquity, the sin of the Amorite or the Amorites is not yet complete. Seems like there's a timetable of sorts that God is following. You see, the Amorites at that time were living in the land that God had promised to Abraham, and they were a wicked people. They, they worshiped nature gods and other false gods. They sacrificed babies. They immersed themselves in sexual sin. Gosh, now that I say it, it sounds like us. Sounds a bit like the United States. But I believe that what God is saying in verse 16 here is that he's going to withhold judgment on them. The timing's not right yet. He's going to give the Amorites four centuries to repent. That's a long-suffering God. And he's going to do it while his own people are suffering in Egypt. And because they never repented, they were actually storing up wrath for 400 years. That's a lot of wrath. And after Israel grew in strength and numbers, God would use them to inflict his judgment upon the Amorites and drive them from the land. They couldn't do that before Egypt. Another reason, another reason for their suffering may have been just so that they would never, ever forget it. You know, how many times have we gone through difficulties, trials, and things like that? Oh, God, if you just deliver me from this, I'll, I'll serve you the rest. You know, we make these promises, and then, you know, two months later, we're, we're totally oblivious, forgot about the promise that we made to God. God wanted to make sure they would never, ever forget what life was like in Egypt. 
He wanted them and Pharaoh and all of Egypt to witness his power in delivering all of his people. He wanted them to never forget the experience that they had in Egypt, both good and bad. God wanted them to never forget that he alone is their salvation, that he alone is their provider and sustainer. Remember, God promised that when they came out of Egypt, they would not leave empty-handed, but they would come out with great wealth and many possessions. The last reason I'll share with you is that I, I, think, I think they simply had to cry out to God for deliverance. Their suffering had to get to a point where it's like, you know what, we're just not gonna try to, you know, you know, uh, grit and bear it. You know, we're, we're just not gonna make it through another hard day. We're, we're gonna cry out with all of our heart to God. And God wants his people to cry out to him. He wants us to come to him in prayer. He delights in hearing our prayers, especially the prayer of surrender. Have you done that? If you're here this morning or watching online and you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, how desperate do you have to be to do that? Those of you who are struggling with addictions, how desperate are you for God's deliverance? You know, there have been things in my own life that I have struggled with and, 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 you know, at first I, I would pray, oh, God, you know, deliver me from this. Take this away from me, whatever it was. But I had to get to a point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had to cry out to God and say, God, set me free. And then take advantage of the way of escape that he provides. For God's people in Egypt, there was no quick fix there was no immediate happy ending. There was no fast forwarding through pain and suffering. They had to endure their ill treatment for centuries and wait upon God in his perfect timing to provide deliverance. We may not understand the why behind our suffering. The Bible doesn't give us simplistic answers to life's most perplexing problems, but it does give us a context for our suffering which in turn helps us to make sense of it, at least to some degree. Chapter one certainly helps us put all our troubles in perspective, doesn't it? Whatever you're going through, whatever you've gone through, whatever we might go through, it's not like this. But it does so much more than just help us put our troubles in perspective. It ought to leave us yearning for a savior. It leaves us crying out for God to deliver us from our sin and our sin sick world. The story of the exodus of God's people coming out of Egypt points to a greater story, a greater deliverance, a greater savior, the savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 may be a lousy place for us to end this morning. 
But rest assured, it's not the end of the story. God always fulfills his promises, accomplishes his purposes, and brings about the salvation of his people. That's what we're going to see in the coming weeks. Remember, God's ways aren't our ways, and his timing is not our timing. So wait on God, hold fast to his promises, and rest in his sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to look at your word, to study it, to learn of you and your dealings with your people. Father, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for our Savior who set us free from the greatest bondage anyone could ever have been in, and that is the bondage of sin. Lord, I pray for those that might be listening right now who are still in bondage to sin. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you for you to set them free and to give them the gift of eternal life. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.